Welcome to the Mountain and Valley Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kip Wilkinson. A few years ago, my friend Michael Horvath and I had an idea for a project wherein we would record the stories of people we knew in order to share them with the world. That project grew into what you're about to listen to. This podcast exists to share the stories of everyday people, to discuss the difficult moments in life, the amazing triumphant times, and the winding journey in between. We all have a story to tell, and we hope this podcast helps you in telling your own. Imagine for a moment that you're in high school and life is going pretty good. You're a star athlete with hopes of playing for a college team. Everything looks set. Then you realize there is something seriously wrong with you medically. Before you know it, you're going in for an emergency heart surgery. Afterward, the pain is so bad that you find yourself abusing substances to numb the feeling. Soon your parents kick you out and you're living on an air mattress. Where could you possibly go from there? Well, I want to let my friend Colton True tell you his story. Okay, so where do we begin? Okay, so let's go to... Um, I remember laying in the bed one night and uh, wondering, what what is life about? Okay, wondering, uh, why am I here? Okay, and then also... Uh, so I go to bed or whatever. Um, I used to always have nights like that where I kind of just lay in bed, like, I don't know, just, just in deep thought. I'm a deep thinker at times. And, uh, and so but it, one, uh, one, uh, one night I had a dream. I know this is a weird dream. Okay, so basically I'm running from, it was like a witch that was chasing me. I know this is crazy, but let me get to the point. So a, a witch is, is literally chasing me and like screaming these weird names and like monsters in the background. And I'm running and I'm running and I'm running. And I kind of got to a point where I was like, I don't have anyone to call out to, to to help me, to save me. I'm just running for my life and, and I, don't, I don't have anyone to, to say, help me, save me. I had to do it all myself and it freaked me out not knowing that I couldn't call on anybody. And... Um, I remember I woke up from the dream, and of course, when you're five years old, you go to your parents' room, of course, you know, and, and you, you go in there and say, you know, I had a bad dream, and I'm not going to lie, I got in the bed or whatever, and they helped me, but it was, it was, it was a nightmare that was so bad, uh, I couldn't sleep, and so I was freaking out, and I felt like the devil was uh, spiritually attacking me just with fear. Like, you ever had a, a overwhelming anxiety and fear, and you can't make it leave? Like, it's to the point where you can't sleep, and it's so overwhelming, you don't know what to do, and so... Basically, I had like a panic attack, and I asked my mo- mother uh, and my dad. I was like, I was like, I-, I feel like Satan's attacking me or whatever. I need to ask Jesus into my heart, okay? And so my mom, of course, like it was got so serious, and my both my parents were in tears because I was freaking out, like just freaking out over all this. And uh, long story short, we got on our hands and knees and prayed. You know, the five years old, you, you prayed the prayer, you know. And um, so I asked Jesus into my heart when I was five, and. Of course, when you get introduced to high school, the, the first thing you're probably going to introduce to is drinking. Next thing is smoking pot, all right? And then the next thing is probably pills came later. But that was the two biggest things. And then tobacco. Everybody either dips or smokes, especially where I'm from in Udwal. That's, I kid you not. I'm not kidding you. All, every guy either dipped or smoked. But, uh, and so I kind of... You step into ninth grade and you're confident and, and you, you think that you can, uh, you know, you're Superman, nothing's wrong with you or whatever. And and then you get hit with temptation like you've never been hit before. And so, um, you know, like back in middle school, the the 
the temptation for me was, uh, you know, did I kiss this girl or did I do that? It was uh, nothing, nothing serious. I, it was a good Christian atmosphere. Even the, my friends, none of us were into drugs, alcohol, sex, or anything like that. But, but in ninth grade is when like we were like, okay, this is a whole different world. Okay, so like you have ninth graders having sex with all the time, all the time. <laughs> And uh, you have people drinking, you have people smoking, you have people uh, dipping. And so I got introduced to an atmosphere I was not ready and not equipped to handle. And so eventually, you know, you, you're, you're like, ah, oh, I can say no. I can say no. And, and But what you, what you realize, don't realize is when you surround yourself, your surrounding group of friends, all they want to do is do what everybody else is doing, right? So they're not a good influence on you. Eventually, you're like, crap, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing. And I'll never forget ninth grade. I uh, okay. So this is embarrassing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna share. I'm gonna, I don't care. Um, so I was like, it was first time ever drinking, right? And I was like, I'm going big. I'm gonna go Grey Goose. I'm going big. I'm you know I'm. I'm and uh, we had that is big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm gonna be. I'm just gonna be real with you. I'm gonna be transparent with with you guys. So I, I had Grey Goose. Okay. Um, and. You know, everybody's you know, all cocky about the drinking thing. And, and, and I was like, I can drink more than every one of them, and I'll be fine. Never drinking a lick. So we, we, we go camp out, and um, we start drinking. And I'm buzzed, and I'm feeling amazing, and of course. And, and next thing I know, I looked over the bottle, and I had drinking more than anybody. And so uh, we're, we're, you know, we're at a campfire. Everything's going good. All of a sudden, I kid you not, it, was, it hit me like a ton. Like, Imagine, imagine not feeling nothing, and then imagine feeling like just. It, I mean, I'm talking the spins beyond spins. Okay, I'm talking like blackout slash spins slash blackout slash spins. Well, long story short, uh, short I ended up calling my girlfriend. I'm, I'm like, uh, we. Uh, I called her, and I was like, we're getting married. <laughs> you know, I was like, it's a done deal. We are getting married. I, I probably, I was like, I don't care what it takes. We're gonna get married, and she's dying laughing. Of course, I had, I had it saved on voicemail at the time, <laughs> and of course, she knew that I had been drinking. But on the flip side, so after I confessed my undying love to this girl, I end up in my truck, pants down, peed my pants, and then I, uh, not only did I pee my pants, I threw up on myself as I'm sleeping. Oh no. <laughs> so, so imagine waking up in the freezing cold, you pee all over yourself and you throw up all over yourself. And then you wake up to find the voicemail of you confess your undying love to your girlfriend <laughs> and told her you're, you're getting married. And so what did that do? Number one, what that did was it humbled me. That taught me that uh, I was not equipped to handle high school. I was not equipped to handle um uh, <laughs> the the, uh, the the trials and the, obviously the temptation in high school, and so I get home from that day, and of course I'm in shame um, because everybody knew, and of course they were giving me a hard time. Um, and you know the first thing you hear is, "Oh, so you get married? You get married anytime soon, Colton?" <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, shut up, shut up, shut up." Um, but I remember uh, we went to somebody's house, and of course I had the biggest hangover in the world, and and. You, you start thinking when you get the hangover. Uh, I don't know if you've ever um, had this, but when I had a hangover, I started, you know, the deep thought came back, and I started, what the heck am I doing? And um, so, of course, I had to call my girlfriend and tell her, uh, you know, 
we're we're not getting married. <laughs> and I, you know, obviously I got drunk for the first time, and I'm sorry or whatever. And and she laughed. She wasn't even. She didn't even think it was that big of a deal. But I thought it was because I was not acting like myself. I was acting like the world. But again, let's focus on the people I was hanging out with. So you have people who are smoking weed, dipping, drinking, um, having sex with girls, cussing. Um, basically everything that's not Christ-like, okay? When you're hanging around a toxic environment, again, what hap- eventually what happens is you become uh, intoxicated as well. We get to, to sophomore year, and so this is where the story starts getting good. So the sophomore year, uh, again, I was pretty decent at baseball. I, I, I'm not going to say I was bad, but I was, I was good enough to play in college. And so uh, would I have gone pro? Probably not. But, but I was good enough to play in college. But uh, and if I went to church, it's one of those things like, you remember when you go to church, sometimes you're like, I don't want to be here. I'm tired. I don't want to, I don't care what he says. I just want to, you know, appease the family and then I want to go home. And so my heart wasn't in the right place either. And so sophomore year, I'm, I'm playing, uh, you know, I played base, I played, you know, baseball in the summer and we, we go to sophomore year and by probably December, I start having heart issues. And so this is a crazy story. And so my buddy of mine, he had his pericardium was inflamed and he was having heart symptoms and having a ton of heart issues. And he was basically out the entire year with heart, heart issues. And one day we had the same class together. Crazy. This is where it gets a little crazy. We same class together and he starts sharing me his symptoms. And I've been having heart issues too. I just didn't tell anybody. And he, sh- he shared me his symptoms. And I was thinking to myself, I have every single symptom this kid has, every symptom. And I was like, maybe there's something wrong with me. And so I go back to my parents and, you know, my parents like, Cole, you're just being, you know, ridiculous. You're, you have anxiety. You're just scared about whatever. And I was like, no, I really do think I have a heart problem. And I prayed about it. And I feel like God was telling me, you have a heart problem. You need to get it checked out. And so, and I, I believe that he put Connor in my life to, to tell me that you have something wrong with your heart. And so I knew something was up, but we didn't really address it until I met Connor. And so we go to the doctor, and the first time we go to the doctor, they say, Colton, uh, you're just being, you know, not dramatic. What was the better word? You just have anxiety. And so they send me to a psychiatrist or whatever, and they send me to, uh, and they give me the, the mental assessment. And basically, I got diagnosed with anxiety. And so, of course, you know, when you get diagnosed with anxiety, the first thing they want to do is medicate you and give you all these pills and, and say, you know, here's a pill. You know, here's a happy pill. Take it and you'll be fine. And, and I, I'm the type of person, I don't, I'm not going to take it because no, I, I, I knew something was wrong with me. And so I go back to my, the doctor and, and I go back and I'm like, I have a heart issue. And they check me again and everything's fine. And so by the time, by the second time, my parents were like, Colton, you're being ridiculous. Okay, you, you've, you've been to the, the doctor, you, you, you've, you've, we've done everything, you're being ridiculous. There's nothing wrong with you. And I was just persistent. I was like, no, I know that God told me I have a heart issue. So the third time, I'm a, I'm a very nice and easygoing guy, but the third time I went to the doctor and I was very stern. I wasn't mean, but it was one of my best moments in life. And uh, I basically said, uh, if you don't, if you don't check my, you know, the, the right way, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I, I just, I, it doesn't matter what I said, but I was not me. I was not ha- uh, happy about it or was I nice about it. But basically I was like, I have a problem. Find it. Whatever it is. I know I have a heart problem. I want you to find it. He's like, okay, 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 okay. We'll do a, uh, a chest x-ray. And I was like, great, whatever we have to do. So we get a chest x-ray and sure enough, my heart is as big as, he's almost as big as the left side of my body. So your heart is as big as your fist. Now imagine taking your other fist and adding about four more. 
Okay, so my heart was the normal size heart, which is your fist, but on the the lower atrium, it had a lump the size of Texas. And so I have this huge, huge lump, and basically they would call it an enlarged heart because basically um, I had a hole in my heart. And so basically it's called atrial septal defect. When when you breathe and you don't and you have a hole in your heart, it's mixing oxygenated blood with non-oxygenated blood. And so basically every time you breathe, you're poisoning yourself. And so I had no idea. I walked around with this my entire life, and I was getting poisoned the entire time. Po- literally every breath, your body pumps poison through your body. And so I kind of got to a point where, and and so the doctor was like, um, you know, lo and behold, you know, I had an enlarged heart, and he was like, I am so sorry. And of course, you know, when doctors are wrong, they apologize to your parents and everything. But there's nothing they can say to make it better. So, long story short, they sent me to a cardiologist, and when they sent me to a cardiologist, and so basically, they wanted to get the the surgery done quickly because I had pulmonary hypertension, which basically means the blood pressure in my lungs was rising to a point. If it was too high, they couldn't have surgery, and they said I would probably die before I'm 30. But anyway, so we found so I so I had the heart surgery, um, I had you know had all everything taken care of, and I get home, and they 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 were like uh, you know your recovery should be it shouldn't be long because you're young and we did minimal invasive which means they go through your side with a robotic arm, and and so they they do it that way instead of cutting your chest open completely and so I was like fine fine that's fine and so they did minimal invasive and I was like cool I'll be you know six to eight weeks. Uh, recovery and then also a couple oh, six eight weeks of like the 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 core recovery and then you have like probably five months of, of you know you know walk like getting to run again and getting active and you know working your heart out basically you know it's a muscle like anything else so and I thought you know by about five months I was gonna be fine I could play baseball again so but what you don't understand is when you go through a major surgery your mind your your uh, your nervous system, everything is shot. It's out of whack. And so I, and what I didn't realize is after surgery, my whole right side of my body was numb. I couldn't feel it. They had, they had literally torn every, uh, every uh, nervous, basically such, uh, nervous system muscle in my body. And so I couldn't feel a thing. And so I'm basically numb. And so imagine having a, a numb body on one side. It was the weirdest feeling ever. But, but on top of that, everything was just out of whack. My thinking, my... Uh, I started getting depression. I started getting anxiety like no other. Um, and the biggest, the biggest concern was my pericardium was inflamed, which is a sac around the heart. So imagine every time you breathe, um, your pericardium uh, rubs your lungs. And so what happens was every time I would breathe, my pericardium was rubbing my lungs. And so eventually what happens when, you, when it constantly rubs, it starts to, starts to uh, bruise and it starts to basically scab over. And so I have basically to the, rubbing to the point of bleeding inside of my inside of me, and so literally uh, what, the pain was about a thousand. Um, imagine a knife and someone stabbing you every time you breathe, and so imagine being afraid to take a deep breath because you knew how bad it would hurt. Um, and that's um, <clears throat> that was the hardest part for me, and the pain was so unbearable. I didn't even sleep a full night's rest until a month or two months after surgery. Um, the most I could get a night was about two hours at a time. Maybe even that. And so, and after surgery, unless I was heavily, heavily medicated, um, I'd probably sleep about an hour a night. 
I was in so much pain. And so you couldn't keep me high enough to, you know, with all the, the drugs and stuff they give you, you couldn't keep me high enough to, um, to make me not feel the pain. That's how painful it was. And so a ton of complications after surgery. And so imagine this 17-year-old boy, he plays sports, you know, he, everything seems to be going well for his life. And imagine just being absolutely broken. Imagine having your life stolen from you. Imagine having your dreams stolen from you. Imagine everything around you crumbling. And you would think at that point I would turn to Christ and say, Jesus, I need you. I'm broken. I'm desperate. And I need you, right? You would think that would be rock bottom. It wasn't for me. And so I actually, that put me on a track of being mad at God because, again, I was a little boy. So I was mad that he stole my dreams and and. And all my dreams got taken away. And so after that, I started going into the party stage. And so um, I graduated high school with a degree in partying. And so, <laughs> so um, it probably it was probably I was drunk three out of the seven days a week, almost every single week for about four or five years. Um, and then maybe a beer or two here and there throughout the week as well. And so I'm talking... I got introduced to a drug called Adderall, uh, and for most people are like, cool, you know, we use it for school and stuff, but the Adderall to me is the worst drug on the planet. That that drug is, I would not suggest anyone take it. Um, it's a methamphetamine, so really it's just a legal form of meth is what it is. And, and so I was getting high off Adderall, and then I was coming down by drinking every night. Okay, and so... That, that was my life for about three or four years. And then also, you know, I found I was spiraling out of control, doing things I shouldn't be doing. And when I say I was unhappy, it, unhappy is an understatement. I was miserable. When you're there all alone, you're, you're, you're sitting there miserable. Um, you know, you, you're hanging out with friends. Here's, this is a quick story to give you uh, to how bad these kids were. Um, <clears throat> Number one, they they had a, they sold drugs out of a trap house. You ever heard of a trap house? You probably don't believe me, but um, I'm telling the truth. They uh, he had they sold cocaine, um, marijuana out of the um, pillow bags. Literally, they would ship. They would put the the marijuana in a cereal um, um, cereal container, and they would ship it all across the country. It looked like cereal, but inside it was marijuana. But um, cocaine. Um, Oxycontin, oxy, anything you can think of, they had it. And so they would literally just sell out of the house. And so these are the people I was hanging out with. So that's why they never called and checked up on me in, in um, rehab because they were not good friends. Um, so long story short, those people ended up getting um, there. One night they were at the house and they had 12 gauge uh, shotgun pumps to their, pump their heads. And the DEA woke them up at three o'clock in the morning. Imagine having a shotgun cocked at your face at two, three in the morning and the DEA raiding your place trying to get all the drugs that you have there. And so th- that's the life I was living. And so uh, being around every kind of drug you can think of, being around people who were wanted. Like one of, at one time, one was most wanted in Tennessee. Let's just put it that way. My relationship with my dad, uh, I would never say he was abusive. I would never say he was physically abusive, but he was very verbally abusive. And so... Um, when I was living the way I was living, uh, long story short, uh, he kicked me out because he didn't approve of where I was living. And so I lived on an air mattress for three years in one of my rooms, uh, brothers, uh, one of my friends dorm rooms. And so, um, 
imagine living on an air mattress for three years with with basically no family, no, no one to talk to really, and just being miserable after heart surgery. And so, um, you know, what I, what I say to this day, me and my dad's relationship is better. Yes, but um, he was very verbally abusive. And so, what happened was, when someone's verbally abusive, that's the Bible says, death and life comes from the tongue. That's almost worse than being physically abusive. And so. He's a changed man now, but sometimes uh, the damage has been done. And so you forgive him, but the damage is done, man. You, you can't, it's the, the, you know, there's a study that says from the ages of, I think, eight to about 15 or 14 is the pivotal years of a child's mind and how it develops. And so when you're, when you're having this much negativity at such a young age, it, it'll stay with you for the rest of your life. And basically, all I ever heard was negative, 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 negative. And so when you're in a point where you're partying and everything, you're already low, and then your dad's telling you all this, how, how, how much of a mess up you are, and how much you, you're, just, you're, just a, uh, you're just a failure. Um, you, you, dude, the walls cave in, you're like... You just you don't you don't have any confidence. You're just uh, you're looking for for some longing for friendship or something and and, and all the wrong things. And for me, it was just um, it broke me, man. It just broke me when you don't have support from your family, and then you don't really have support from your friends, and then you find yourself all alone, um, and and you just you just you know you finally just break. And unfortunately, with God. Um, he loves to get you a point to a point where you're, where you hit rock bottom. Because when you finally are to the point where you're to the end of yourself, is when God finally steps in and says, "Okay, it's my way. All right, it's time to you lived your way and look how much of a screw up you know you made yourself for your life. So it's time to get things right." And so eventually, I hit rock bottom. Eventually, I had a point where I could I didn't even. I remember I went to a bar one time and I was like, I don't even want to get drunk anymore. I just, you know, I don't even want to, I have no desire. I have no, no desire to be drunk anymore. And so, um, I kind of just, for some reason, I think that was God finally giving me a wake up call, you know? And so I finally, <coughs> I finally, uh, you know, said in 2012, I'm going to, um, I'm going to quit partying. I'm going to finally, you know, get my life right. I ended up going into rehab because I was so bad. So I was abusing Adderall, 120 milligrams, drinking all the time. And so I got to rehab for three months. Um, and <laughs> let's just say my rehab experience was, um, imagine the craziest, it's almost like a psych ward. Imagine crazy, the craziest things you can ever think of. That's what I saw there. And this one girl, um, she would get up in the middle of the night and start screaming and running around wailing until they sedated her. They would have to chase her down, tackle her and sedate her. This was my everyday at uh, rehab. And this is, uh, it was in Atlanta and I stayed there for three months. And, um, also there was people that were going just crazy, crazy, stuff so basically you're you're i was in the, the bed in the rehab and i was going through all this and i was journaling and i was looking at the wall and saying i want more than this i want more than just um being a screw up <laughs> you know and uh and i remember i prayed a prayer and i said god you know whatever i got to go through it doesn't matter whatever i got to go through get me through it um and, and help me get on the other side 
being in rehab too, I, I forgot to mention this. And when you get when you're in rehab, not one friend calls to check up on you. You're gone for three months. You would think one friend would be like, "Where's Colton been? Where has he been? Like, where where's where is he?" Not one friend. And so I realized I didn't have any friends. Um, my family situation was still a mess. Um, me and my dad were better. It, it, we had, and again, my dad has grown tremendously. Uh, now he's not the same man he was before, but again, the damage has been done, but, um, I love him to death and don't get, don't, I don't want to ever say that I hate my dad. I don't hate my dad. And so learning when you don't have any friends, you don't have anybody. Um, but learning that in that time, I learned that Christ is all you need. He's all you need in the most broken of places. God is the only one that's there. He's the only one who cares. The only one. And for so part, so long in my life, I pushed him away, pushed him away, pushed him away. And I kind of got to a point where I was like, wake up, Colton, wake up. I mean, he, he's been knocking at the door for so long. Why don't you let him in? And finally I did in 2012. And Tony Walser, my mom called Tony, and of course I'm a, I'm a wreck. And so it's kind of embarrassing to see Tony in such a wreckful stage. You know, when you see the pastor and you're living in crazy sin, you know, you're just kind of convicted. You know what I mean? I don't know how to describe it, but you're highly convicted. But Tony took me in and he really, he didn't see my sin. He saw the person I could become and he really poured into me and made me believe in myself again. And so again, like when, 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 when you think, when you think about father to me, all I think about is verbally abusive, mean. Um, I think about somebody who, who doesn't love you. And so the, the, the idea of the word father to me, is very touching and so when you have a, um, a man like Tony, he was a father figure, and that was actually nice, and I'd never really experienced um, kindness from a father like that, you know, like a, like a spiritual father, I guess you would say. And, and it was just, uh, you know, it, it broke down barriers that needed to be broke down in my heart. And so, and he really poured into me, poured into me, and he actually led me into uh, baptism to get rebaptized in, in 2014. Um, I, again, I just started getting on fire, starting getting a small group, starting to uh, uh, got connected with a lot of different people who were godly influences, not just people who said, hey, do you want to go get drunk or something like that? And so um, I, I really got to a point where God was starting to use me. And uh, I remember my brother, Kyle, Kyle, he was just like, I've never seen a change like this in somebody ever before. Your change is so drastic. It's like, it's not even you. And I was like, and then, you know, I always quote the scripture, you know, um, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ. And so, um, you know, and so I think, you know, if I find my life doesn't, doesn't mirror Jesus, then, then why, why am I a Christian? You know, like I'm just, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to, to, to be an image bearer of Christ as opposed to, to the way I live that points to Jesus. So who is your favorite baseball team? The, um, the, Bra- the Braves. No, the Mets. The Braves. Oh, the Braves. Yeah. Atlanta Braves. <laughs> yes, son. Yeah. Atlanta Braves, no question about it. Raw Acuna. It looks angry. Albies. Um, Bandwagon. No, I'm just kidding. Oh. That's the closest team. Let's all be right, fair. All right, all it right. is the closest team. Uh-huh. So I guess that's fair. Unless you count the lookouts, but you definitely don't count the lookouts. <laughs> what are the lookouts? Exactly. 
So, baptized in 2014. Uh-huh. Where was your mind at? <clears throat> My mind. My mind was uh, desperation. I-, I need change. And so, um, you know, it's funny, like I said, when you come to the end of yourself, you're like, um, I just, you, when, you come, when you finally come to the end of yourself, you just don't care what anyone thinks. You're just like, I just want to get better. You know, and so, um, you know, getting up in front of people and doing baptize. So, some people that can be uh, scary, I guess, you know, or embar- not embarrassing, but just frightening, you know. But for me, it was like, I don't even care. I'm just ready to get better. And so for me, it was, it was, I was happy and excited. Yeah. Um, and it was, uh, that's really what started all of this. Mm-hmm. So was that, was that day, June, June 15th, 2014. Fun fact, Kip, is uh, that was really close to uh, the day that I got baptized on the right side of my salvation. We talked about that while you were wow. out the room. So when he was talking about that, I was like, Dang, that's, that's pretty cool. cool. Yeah, that's did a awesome. lot of good things yeah. in 2014. Yeah, he did. For sure. I yeah. met my now wife then. Wow. Hey. <laughs> Got that wife now. Yeah. I don't know what I was doing in 2014. <laughs> working on <in> Lifeway. <laughs> working in Lifeway. <laughs> in school, working in Lifeway. I remember okay. what you were doing. We won't go there. Oh, no. I don't want to know. Um, no, I mean, that kind of makes me think about this one thing you were saying um you kept saying you had a heart problem which to me is really funny because that's like a very christianese phrase that like everyone in church uses like oh you have a heart problem like anyone who's not saved Mm -hmm. like if they haven't met jesus at all it's like you have a heart problem right um and you literally had a physical heart problem. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. No, Even, I have not. It was metaphoric it, at the same time. Yeah. Yes. And the cool thing, it too, is like you were saying the actual effect of it was it poisoning your body. Uh-huh. You like were the, poisoning your body with your life decisions. It's yeah. so yeah. crazy. Yeah. I don't yeah. Have you ever thought about that? Yes, I have. Well, a little bit. But yeah, that is so true. That, yeah. that is kind of how, you know, it's funny. I, yeah, I literally had a heart problem, but, but spiritually, yeah. you know. I had a heart problem as well, and that's just uh, only uh, only God can fill it. You know, I, like I said, I searched through everything else, and trust me, the only thing that can fill it is God. And it's yeah. the only person who can take your brokenness and turn it into something redeemable. Yeah, for sure. You know, but, and to add on to that, it's you had to get your heart fixed before you could move on, uh-huh. like before the next part of your story could continue. And that was. That was really cool to see because the same same thing with your your physical. It was you know you had to have heart surgery before you could continue on with life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had physical and spiritual heart surgery at the same time. It's man. legit. A lot of, a lot, of legit. a lot going on. A lot going on. For um, sure. How did you feel when none of the doctors or your parents believed you? Because mm-hmm. that seems I'd be so frustrated. You know, I, I'm a very very nice person almost all the time, but there are some times when I will. Um, you know, the line comes out. And, and those were, that was one of the times when you're just sick and tired of people not listening to you when you know you're right. Yeah. And so, I don't know, you kind of just, uh, you kind of just break. Yeah. And so, but sometimes you have to be that way to get your point across. That's true. But um, it was, it was definitely life-changing, no question, when they finally, finally listened. But yeah. And so, but it was, it was good knowing that I was right and, and not, not actually, let's rephrase that. It's good knowing that God was right and I just followed in obedience to what mm-hmm. he was telling me and yeah. what I knew in my heart was the truth. That's, so. well, and that's crazy to think about. Like you, you know, God used 
your friend in class to kind of lay that on your heart and like you just said you had to follow in obedience is a beautiful picture of if you don't follow in obedience to God you're, you're walking a, a road of death so yeah. literally yeah. had you not listened and you know actually spoken up and said God I'm going to trust you I, you know this is what I, I know you're telling me mm-hmm. you may not be with us today no, uh-uh. uh, they said if I didn't have surgery, I would have died at age thirty. So uh, I'm 28 now. So I have, if I didn't have surgery, I would have died two years from now. So Man. crazy, crazy. So was there? You've talked about now. Um, you and your dad have a better relationship. Maybe not ideal because damage has been done. Right. Was there a specific turning point, or was there any type of uh, reconciliation to an extent, or yeah. has oh, it yeah, just yeah, been yeah, yeah. an ongoing now, process? I love that you brought this up, because I want to talk to you about because sometimes uh, when you talk about it, it heals wounds. But yeah, uh, you know, growing up, my, my, my home life was, from the outside looking in, I had it made, right? But, but we, we all know that um, home life for a lot of us was not great, um, and for me particularly, it was not great, I think. I remember shouting, yelling, screaming over stupid stuff probably my entire home life. And so, um, but basically when I got back from rehab, I went to my dad and said, you know, and we, we kind of reconciled and we, you know, um, we worked on a relationship. And ever since I came back to Christ, mm-hmm. he's healed that relationship. And so, is my dad perfect? No. But honestly, now it's just... It's just like we go on each other's nerves. It has nothing to do with what it was in the past. Like mm-hmm. it's just father son stuff at this point. Yeah, dude. It's like even if you're my friend, you're gonna get on my nerves. Yeah, for sure. Okay, yeah. and my dad's the same way. I get on his nerves, he gets on mine. But it is nothing. Let me, let me. I want to be very clear. Nothing like it was before. Right. Nothing. So God, God has healed that. But, um, but again, man, you, you, you again, you, you'll have flashbacks and just think about some of the stuff in the past and how God has really taken a hold of him, you know, and, um, again, you know, my, my always thought of a father growing up was someone who's mean and abusive. I didn't, I didn't know what a loving father really was. And so, um, you know, that's when Christ kind of, you know, showed me that, you know, I am the loving father. I am, I am the person that, that loves you unconditionally. Yeah. He redefined that for you. Right. And, and, And that's what my dad has been ever since probably, probably 2013, when I came, finally moved back in at right. home, and we kind of reconciled, and so it's amazing how God can change somebody. Um, is He perfect? No, but like I said, most of the time it's just He gets on my nerves because He's because it's He's your dad. He's, yeah, yeah, that's how it works. Right? Yeah, that's how it works. But um, it, it's it's nothing like it was now, and I'm not going to sit on here and bash my dad because it's not anything like it was. But I just wanted to be transparent for a little bit, yeah, and just to be honest about how I grew up. No, absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to bring it back up because knowing you today and kind of hearing your story, it's it's evident that God has done a lot of work there. And, you know, there's going to be progress continual, hopefully. And, you know, absolutely. You're yeah. never done trying to, um, to heal old wounds. And sometimes they never fully heal, but you're, works toward, you're working towards that and, and God's allowing that process. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just a, a really cool thing to see how it went from one extreme and, and God's brought it such a long way. Today, if you could talk to somebody going through what you went through, uh-huh. if you could talk to yourself back when you were in the the deepest, darkest mess of it, what advice would you give or, or kind of what would you or say? Advice. Would it be encouragement? Would it kind of be 
Talk to myself or somebody else? We'll say yourself. Because okay. you know you. Uh, Imagine what I you're would speaking do, to your younger self. Okay. Yeah. What I would do is if I could, in a perfect world, I would go back. Um, you know, it's funny. The age of 14. Because I feel like that's the pivotal year. That's when you're... Um, a lot of stuff was happening in my life at age four, 14. And I would basically tell him to cling to Jesus and do, do not chase after girls and nothingness. Cling to Jesus and stay close to church family um, because you're going to need it down the road. And then also, you know, in a perfect world, I'd go back and say, hey, you have a heart problem, so let's go ahead and get that fixed now. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Go to the doctor. Yeah, go, the, go ahead and go to the doctor get it fixed Make now. him listen. Yeah. Um, but just my, my biggest advice would be, you know, and parents say it all the time, but sometimes it doesn't resonate until the right person says it. But oh, absolutely. Cling to Jesus over, above all else, above all else. And so, and just to, to, to let myself realize that everything else is nothingness. Uh, Solomon describes it as chasing the wind. You're chasing nothingness or chasing the dragon. You're chasing something. It's just air. There's nothing... Um, smoke. Yeah, or just smoke. Yeah, you're chasing nothing that gives you life. Yeah. And so the only thing that gives you life is chasing after Christ. And so learning about who to chase, number one, and then two, learning how to continually fall in this relationship each stage in life and not deviate. You know, and so the, I am the worst at, okay, from this stage, I was falling like crazy. In this stage, I was in left field in the desert. And then this stage, I was, you know, I'm just zigzagging everywhere instead of a straight line. Yeah. You know, the quickest way to one point is a straight line. And right. so I was... A lot what, of up and down. Up and down. Up and down. Yeah. And so um, just stay on the straight and narrow, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and remember that, that uh, God is in control. No matter what you go through, it's going to be okay. Like, okay. A little backstory. So we worked together at Lifeway for... A few years. Three years. Two yeah. years. Three years. Yeah. Quite a while. Not a sponsor. Not a sponsor. Um, but I, I know, like, for a long time, one of the things you brought up, like, every now and then was your dream trip and uh-huh. how as soon as you got out of college, you wanted to take a trip to Israel. Yeah. And you've now done that. <laughs> so yes. tell us about it. Please. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. So I can remember actually telling you that I wanted to go to Israel back in like 2016. So I've been talking about it for a long, 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 long time. But I finally got to go. I got to see everywhere Jesus walked. I got to see the empty tomb. I got to see um, where he turned water to wine. Got to see where he turned to, told the man to go in the pool of Bethsaida and get healed. I saw, I saw everything you could ever want to see. But the thing that broke me was the commercialism. So mm-hmm. imagine imagine a population of, of uh, 9 million people, only 2% believe. Yeah. There. Okay, so you have all these people who don't believe, but yet they're still selling Christian things. They still sell, you know, the crosses, the shirts, the Jesus, yeah. everything, the Jesus, they're Jesus, selling every, every. the experience. Yes. And so it's like they're using his name to make money, not using his name to, to say, this is your savior. This is the promised Messiah. And, uh, it broke me. And I talked to a pastor about it and he said, the second time you come, it won't break you as bad and you can enjoy the other part of the experience. So that was the biggest part of it was not that they were mocking Jesus, but they were using the temple tables. You even said it yourself. And, yeah. and I, I thought the exact same thing. I said, if Jesus were here today, he'd be there on temple tables. I'm telling you. Yes. Um, yeah. Cause this is holy ground. This is the ground where, uh, 
the, the, the basis of the Christian faith was born. I mean, to, to them, it's not their Messiah because a lot of it's Jewish. Right. And yeah. so that was another thing. And so have you ever heard the Wailing Wall? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so the Jews literally believe that God is in this wall, that according to the locals. They believe that he is in the wall. And so like they go to this wall praying to it because it's the remains of the Temple Mount. Uh, I think it's back in, you read it in Matthew, but basically it's uh, considered the holiest temple on the earth. Okay. Right. Considered the holy of holies. And so they pray to this wall for the promised Messiah, and they do their little prayer chants and stuff. And I went to the one wall, and I look at these people, and I felt so broken because I was like, your Messiah came 2,000 years ago. You just won't acknowledge it. Right. And I just, I just got, it just breaks you when you see these people who, um, who are good people, and they're, and they're so religious but yet they don't have um, a relationship with God. And I had a, a story of a man uh, who asked them, you know, you do all these prayers and you do all these things, and does God ever answer you? Uh, and they were like, no. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, should you, you know, should you question on who you pray to, right? Yeah. Are you sure you're praying to the God of it, the real God of Israel, the God who came to save you? And and uh, you know, they're like, I never really thought of it that way. I just do because everyone else does it, right? I just do because I'm supposed to. Right. And you know, the Jews they do all these works, okay, because they believe that you have to keep the law, and they believe right. that that only works uh, gets you into heaven, being a good person. And and to me, it's so sad to see these people. Uh, so close to the Holy Land, the Holy of Holy, the Holy Land, but yet so far from God. Um, it, it, I, it, uh, just what you said reminded me of. There's a story in Acts, and uh, there's this crippled man. He's sitting right outside the walls of the temple. Yep. Mm-hmm. And he's, it's, what was it? It's like the gate called Beautiful. So it's like the most popular gate. Wait, in like the most popular entrance into the temple. So, like, almost everybody's walking past this man who's uh-huh. crippled and just asking for help because um, he can't enter the temple himself. Right. And he just wants God to answer him, basically. Like, that's what he's looking for is a way to get to God. And all these people who believe in God are just walking right past him. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, I can't remember who it was. It's two of the apostles. Uh, Peter. It's Peter, yeah. Yep. And was then, it Peter and Andrew? I thought it was Peter and John. Maybe. I want to say Peter and John. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, we'll I, just, I do know it's Peter, without a doubt. If we're wrong, listeners, I'm very sorry. <laughs> it's Peter for sure. We'll look it up later. Yeah. <laughs> Working no, on but, that now. But they, they walk up and um, they heal him and I mean, he's just jumping outside the temple with joy because the Spirit of God is no longer inside of the temple. It's, yes, it's, it's in the, the people who believe in him. Right. It's Acts 3, verse yes. 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. There mm-hmm. it is. Thank you, Kip and Colton. No problem. <laughs> Telling Bible stories the hard way. Yeah. And, and, you know, the Bible says uh, a, a disciple uh, maker of mine, and the guy that kind of mentors me, you know, he, he, he always he quoted Romans uh, 2, 28 through 29, mm-hmm. and basically says the, a real Jew is circumcised by the heart, yeah. not by, um, not by you know, the circumcision as we, you know, the physical body. And he was talking about how the real Jews are actually the children of God. We are the, 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 the we're called spiritual Jews. And so basically when the Bible says salvation comes from the Jews, he's not saying the, the Orthodox Jews that I saw in Israel. He's talking about the children of God. Salvation, it lives in, inside each one of us and flows through each one of us. Uh, to get you know to be the hands and feet of Christ, and so for me, it's it's seeing um, again someone so close but yet so far yeah. from from the truth, and so and from their Messiah, and and just uh, 
And knowing that <clears throat> there's nothing good in me, but the only thing good in me is Christ, right? And knowing that, you know, that the truth could save them, but yet they refuse to believe. Yeah. And, and oh, I don't know, man, it's just heartbreaking. Yes. Oh, man. Heartbreaking. But uh, that was un- unreal, man, to see the welling wall. That was um, literally, and through religions, according to the locals, the, uh, the Muslim faith, the Jewish faith, and the Christian faith, yep. three of the most holy sites in the world take place in Jerusalem, yeah. according to those three faiths. And so to see, to be, again, on holy ground, yeah. and yet to see it so divided, it's just sad. Oh, I, um, yeah, I can't imagine. It's, it's Man, it's, it's heartbreaking. But on the flip side, to see these places and to, to know that like when you read the Bible, these are real places. Uh, there was a place in uh, Caesarea, uh, it's by the Mediterranean Sea, where it has a, uh, a rock of that has Pontius Pilate's name on it, which is proof this dude was a real person, okay? Yeah. Like, they, these aren't made-up names. These are real people, okay? And, uh, and history and, reflects and, what they did. Yeah, and, like, you know, and archaeologists now, uh, you know, and a lot of people that aren't even Christian will acknowledge, right. you know, okay, these are real people. Yeah. Okay, these aren't just made-up names. And so that was a big find for... For you know us who believe Christians to, to, to prove that you know Pontius Pilate and, and uh, Caiaphas you know uh, all these all these names in the Bible you know Jesus you know John all these names yeah. uh, they're real people they, yeah. these are real people these aren't just made up names um, or, or made up people or made up stories or fairy tales like some people say they are they're, they're it's real and um, when you see these places it's more like a shrine like if you, you remember the Buddhist temple that we went in in China right remember like it was shriny just, the, the, just weird yeah, yeah that's what it felt like and I'm like this is not Christian like when I was there I was like I don't feel Jesus I feel something else yeah idolatry yes yeah. you know when I was going into the tomb there was people selling like Jesus stuff like by the tomb and I'm like this is supposed to be holy ground and you're selling stuff right by his tomb and I, I don't know man like yeah, I don't know but and so I was at the garden tomb and what God really spoke to me is when the angels said to Mary Magdalene uh, why are you looking for the living among the dead and so I was like why are you looking for the living among the dead so I asked myself I was like why does it matter Ooh. man that's good yeah. yeah I was like why does it matter he's alive wherever it was it, he's risen now yeah he's risen so he, it was like why does it matter yeah. and so like um, and so I kind of I started thinking I was like he's alive and I know it because of the change in my heart and because of the things that he's done in my life so it'll be 1 Corinthians 1.30 it says uh, God has united me with Christ Jesus for my benefit God made him to be wisdom itself Christ made me right with God he made me pure he made me holy and he freed me from my sin Thank you for listening to the Mountain and Valley Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on social media. Just search underscore MV Podcast on any platform. Again, that's underscore M as in mountain, V as in valley, podcast. This podcast was created and produced by Micah Horvath and Kip Wilkinson. All of our original music has been produced by the talented Robert Luther. This episode was mastered by J.A. Parkey. Thank you so much for listening. Now go tell your story.